We're going to talk about setting up cover crops for no-till vegetable success. And I know that this is probably not the most popular topic on here because the percentage of vegetable growers is, is not that great. Uh, but that being said, I've had a couple requests on this and on, on this topic, so I want to cover it today. And I'm sure the rest of you certainly always can pick up some things, but uh, I just wanted to kind of go back a little bit. I always like to give a perspective of, of where I come from, where my uh, history has been. And uh, I am a third generation vegetable farmer. My grandfather grew tomatoes. So uh, my dad did and uh, pumpkins as well. And I started no-till in 1982 and pretty much transitioned a good part of the farm fairly soon after that, with one big exception, my vegetable ground. Uh, and I remember my cousin asking me when I was going to sell the plow. And this was like the late 80s. I was, you know, six or eight years into no-till. And I said, well, I can't sell the plow. I grow vegetables. We got a plow to plant the vegetables. And then I had heard a talk from one USDA researcher from, from the Beltsville Agriculture uh, uh, Research Station, uh, two and a half hours south of me. I heard this guy talk about no-till vegetables and no-till transplanted tomatoes. And I was like, you got to be kidding. I got to figure this out. I got to look at this. So I actually heard him speak in the winter uh, of uh, 93, 94. I drove down the following summer of 94. I wanted to see this for myself. And when I saw it, I thought, I got to do this. So that led to a series of events. And uh, there was a no-till vegetable transplanter design developed. Uh, what you see here in the picture is... Uh, or my no-till transplanting of processing tomatoes. That's why they have double rows there. We had a two-row planter, but we just offset a little bit to create the double rows for the machine harvest. And to my knowledge, that's probably the first no-till machine harvest tomatoes in the nation. Uh, and uh, I had done 20, year, 20 acres a year for about seven or eight years like that. I had done about five to seven of, of, excuse me, fresh market tomatoes for many years. Uh, I started in 1995, as I said, and I never looked back. I did one year of testing uh, in 95, and then from 96 on, I was 100% no-till on, uh, on my tomato transplanted. Uh, and, and I guess the thing that just impressed me so much was the ability of the cover crop to control weeds and also to supply a good portion of nitrogen uh, for my plants. So this picture here was one of my first crop of no-till transplanted tomatoes. And when this picture was taken, there was no fertilizer added uh, to up to this point. And I don't recall if I had put any herbicide on or not. Back in those days, I wasn't keeping track of anything like this. I had no idea I was going to be talking about this stuff later on. Uh, but that being said, I do recall there was there was no fungicides applied and 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 no no fertilizer. Uh, now I did apply some a little bit later on through the drip irrigation with uh, with fertility wise, but I really got off in a good start uh, with this. And then we had been growing 
pumpkins and squash. And that was our easy transition because we direct seed them right into the cover crop. I had a planter that I used for my corn that I could just easily do that. And then I started growing sweet corn. And again, that wasn't a big transition for me because I was no-tilling field corn. So that's a little bit of my history. I have successfully no-tilled tomatoes, transplanted tomatoes, pumpkins, squash, and sweet corn. I also dabbled in peppers and coal crops, broccoli, cauliflower, that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm gonna talk about them a little bit later. So that is my experience that I'm coming from today. And I have been uh, monitoring this um, to the present. Now, where I'm at today is all my tomatoes are now grown in high tunnels. And that is simply because the protection that that offers gives a much higher quality fruit. So I don't have any no-till planted tomatoes out in a field situation anymore. I no longer grow processing tomatoes that I, that market, I was just too small to compete in that. I no longer grow sweet corn because it kind of became a commodity with the, with the supermarkets. And um, what I have done is I've greatly expanded my pumpkins and my squash. So I have 80 acres of pumpkins and squash, no-till, direct seeded into cover crops. So that's really where I'm at right now. So the acreage in one way hasn't changed a lot total for my no-till vegetable production, but I focus pretty much on no-till squash and pumpkins, and they work really, really well. So a few things I want to go over here to kind of give a good foundation and to set us up for expectations in this. And number one is if you're growing your produce for early production, like you want to be the first person in your neighborhood to have tomatoes on your fruit and on your roadside stand or or to sell to a local store, just going with the no-till and the cover crops because of the cooler soil and so forth and the opportunity to let the cover crop grow or the desire to let it grow and mature, this is not really set up for early production. One of the reasons I went straight to high tunnels in my tomatoes is to get earlier production because they're covered and it kind of gives the greenhouse effect. Um, so uh, just want to put that out there. Uh, the only exception I'll say, and I'll probably, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, is sweet corn. If you do it right, and I'll talk about this, you can have actually earlier sweet corn production by using cover crops. So uh, not for the early production here is, is what you want to consider with no-till. So again, why are we doing this? Well, we all know the, the reasons we use cover crops and no-till. I'm not going to go over, rehash all that. Some of the tangible reasons in the uh, vegetable uh, market is cleaner pumpkins. Oh, that's been huge. There's been hundreds, if not thousands of acres of no-till pumpkins simply because of the value added of having cleaner pumpkins because they're growing on a, usually it's a rolled down hairy vetch, triticale, cereal rye type cover crop. And it literally keeps the pumpkins cleaner. Uh, the other thing too, and this particularly relates to sweet corn to some degree in pumpkins, depending how it is and how your um, cover crop species mix is, less nitrogen or less fertilizer needed. A little bit of a minor thing, but, uh, these are just some of the reasons 
beyond the normal reasons of using cover crops in the vegetable sector. So <clears throat> what are the most popular ones? I've kind of mentioned them here. Pumpkins are probably by far the most popular acreage-wise. I do know of some farmers who are planting broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage. I actually sold my no-till vegetable transplanter to a neighbor who now no-till transplants uh, the coal crops for the fall, and that's worked well. Um, there's quite a bit of no-till sweet corn. That would also be in the running for maybe the biggest acres. We have so much um, knowledge on field corn, it's not that difficult to do. You have the planters available now to do it, and uh, so that's a big one. Um, and, and there are some other ones out there. I'll just mention one that is working for the small-scale growers that you may not think about is spinach. There's something about growing spinach after radishes uh, where you plant your spinach with a direct seed no-till planter early in the spring after radishes are winter-killed, and there's some sort of synergy that goes on there that makes that spinach just really grow like crazy. So that's been kind of like an odd fact, random fact there for you in that, but um, interesting nonetheless. So what is some of the questions we need to ask ourselves? And you know what, you've heard me speak before. One of the first things when you're talking about cover crops is what are you trying to accomplish? So what is the intended vegetable crop? I listed a bunch here. I'm not going to rehash them. Um, but when you're setting yourself up, and, and by the way, this talk today is not about managing the, the cash crop of vegetables. This is about setting ourselves up for the following year in, in the choices we make for successful no-till cover crop vegetable production. So what is your intended vegetable crop? Uh, is, is of course the first obvious thing. And then when is your expected planting date in the spring? I touched on the earliness factor, but are you going for early planted sweet corn or late planted sweet corn or, or all? That's going to determine what cover crop you want to plant. Uh, and then, of course, choosing the appropriate cover crop species or mix. And uh, again, all these things are inter interrelated, but these are decisions that have to be made in the fall. Remember, there's no cookie cutter approach to cover cropping. Every week, you could say changes in the fall. Some Number one is what is available for you, what fields become available for you to plant to set yourself up for the next year, and then what are you trying to do within that context. Uh, so then that affects your seeding rate. Uh, just simply put, the later we get into the season, the higher seeding rates you need, you need to go. And there's also a factor sometimes of field history, and that relates to fertility and all that. So um, you just have to take that into consideration that if, if you have a higher fertile soil or soil that received manure, the seeding rate can maybe be a little bit lower because you don't want it too high that the cover crop gets out of control. And that's something, sometimes that happens that it presents a challenge later on. Another question you have to ask is, what is your expected termination method? Are you going to grow something like spring oats that will winter kill in most areas, or radish that will winter kill, or something like triticale or cereal rye that will not winter kill? Uh, so this helps set you up for success in the spring. You're going to burn it down. Are you going to roll it and crimp it 
um, or sometimes a combination of the latter two there. So again, all these kind of obvious things, but you need to check them off the list in your mind as you're thinking about it. And then finally, one more thing to consider is are you transplanting or direct seeding? Now, direct seeding is the easiest because there's lots of planters around that you can direct seed, like your pumpkin squash and sweet corn. Um, so not a big deal there. Transplanting is a whole different story. Very, very few no-till transplanters capable of planting through thick cover crop residues. Uh, there just aren't available at, in many areas. Uh, that is changing slowly. Uh, here in the Mid-Atlantic region, we have um, some farmers who have had them made. Um, there has been some companies who have produced some no-till uh, transplanters, but they've been the small type companies that are willing to customize it. Here in my area of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, we have a lot of small scale farmers. And uh, the interesting thing about it is because of the Amish that are around here, a lot of them grow tobacco, that there's no-till planters designed for tobacco that can be used for vegetables as well. So uh, here in my area now, you can get a no-till vegetable transplanter if you want one. There's several of them out for rent. And uh, so, but that has taken time. Like I said, I started in 95. That's over 20 years ago. So it took, it took a long time. Um, before I forget it, I'll just say that Penn State University is looking at doing some more research on no-till tomatoes. Uh, I was just informed and asked to be a part of their advisory uh, committee on that project. So uh, it does continue. Uh, I will say that the no-till system has been a whole lot slower to be adopted in the vegetable industry. It is more challenging, there is a lack of equipment, but nonetheless, there's because of the kind of momentum that cover crops have been got have gotten in the last five to 10 years collectively from agriculture, there seems to be a renewed sense in the vegetable industry that we need to uh, tackle this. Um, so I wanna cover, uh, start with sweet corn here and just some specifics because I know some of you grow sweet corn. Um, so if we're going to plant early sweet corn, uh, and that's a big deal if you're marketing it, uh, you want to have the first sweet corn out there. You can have some of the earliest sweet corn out there. Um, and and I have, when I used to, to grow it, um, I would actually, I designed a no-till plastic layer. I forgot to put that in this presentation. I should put that on the Facebook group, but I designed a no-till plastic layer that I could literally plant the corn and then cover it with plastic. It was a it was a, a bio a photo degradable type plastic that it disappeared throughout the season, but it was pretty cool the way it works. And I could have sweet corn as early as anybody. But even if you're comparing bare ground to bare ground, even plowed tilled soil, when you plant about 10 pounds of radishes in the fall, if you can get them planted like in the month of September, uh, and they grow, plant a heavier seeding rate. So it's, it just completely blocks out all the weeds. They winter kill and the little holes that they open up in the ground keep the soil warmer. We have proven that the soil temperature can be two to four degrees warmer after a cover crop of straight radishes. Now we're talking about getting an advantage here with some early sweet corn. And it may even eliminate the need for an early burn down. Um, 
and less early nitrogen because the radishes are releasing it back into the soil. Now, everything I just said about sweet corn could be translated to field corn, which a lot of us are involved with. Uh, so take that for whatever it's worth. Um, but if but there's you know if you're really into the sweet corn, you're usually planting it over a two-month period. So you have to think about what is available in your planting window. So mid-season sweet corn, if we're going to target that, we got these uh, legume-type cover crops like hairy vetch, winter peas, and crimson clover. And <clears throat> excuse me, I should have added probably in um, some spring oats to this. And I'll just I'll like back up and say you can add spring oats to your early planted mix. But if you really go on for that super early stuff, the spring oats still keeps the ground covered a little bit more. And you may not quite get the warm temperatures with straight radish. So uh, what I used to do was I had one field of straight radish. Then my next field, I in the fall, I planted a radish oats. And then I started adding these legumes for my mid-season sweet corn. So again, it's a, it's a lot of strategy goes in to make this work. And, and I couldn't do all my acres exactly the way I wanted because, you know, the fields don't become available in my crop rotation. But this was the goal nonetheless. So uh, obviously we want to go with legumes to try to help with our nitrogen. I, I would uh, put a little bit of triticale in there uh, as well uh, just to get add to the diversity. So um, this is just a picture here of going planting, no-till planting in a mainly crimson clover. This would have been in the middle of May. The crimson clover is just starting to bloom in my area at that time. And uh, that's just a nice cover crop to plant into. Now, keep in mind, this was several years ago when I was planting corn. You can see the configuration of my planter there. We had 21-inch rows and 41-inch rows. And it certainly made it a whole lot nicer to lay my plastic early in that configuration. And then for harvesting, it was nicer to walk through the rows. So that's why I configured my sweet corn planter uh, like you see it on there. And then I'll just say with sweet corn, if you're going with late season sweet corn, hairy vetch is a little later maturing. And that's just a, to go straight hairy vetch is, uh, is certainly a good idea because we really want nitrogen production. And it's kind of nice because the hairy vetch releases its nitrogen when the corn needs it uh, over that summer. And uh, for me, my biggest market for sweet corn was the Labor Day weekend. For those of us in the U.S., which is the first weekend in September, and we always planted that in the middle of June. And my hairy vetch was like, you know, just full prime uh, uh, production of nitrogen. This picture that you see here, zero nitrogen applied. Uh, to that sweet corn and I'll just tell you it was good corn uh, so this is where you can really experience some savings uh, when you do this and when you do something like that so I'm just going to pause here for a second I'll open up the lines for everybody to uh, ask questions or comment uh, on this and then I'll move into the transplanted vegetables so what are your comments or questions so far <clears throat> Anybody? The only comment uh, I'd make is definitely with the pumpkins. I, I really notice that when my garden, they come out so nice and clean, you don't get the rot or anything on them. Yeah. It's. And, and I'll just follow up. Yeah. Um, 
those of you who have been following the, us in the East here, and a lot of us, we've had an extremely wet year. I mean, extreme is putting it mildly. Uh, we're probably almost 40, 50% higher precip now than normal. And um, the thing that marked this year for us is it has been consistently wet. And it's just day after day, week after week. And I gotta, I'll tell you, it really challenged my system this year. Uh, my early pumpkins, I had poor weed control. My late pumpkins, I had really good weed control. Um, but, and, and, and it really did help to, to uh, certainly uh, lessen the rot on the bottom side of the pumpkins that normally touch the soil. But I can't say that I had 100% uh, a clean fruit, but it's a whole lot better. I talked to many, many farmers in this area who never even harvested fields. And and I'm going to probably come out this year with maybe a, I'll just guess right now, maybe a 20% loss, but that's really, really good compared to a lot else around here. And I, 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 I tell people, I don't want to brag, but them cover crops and no-till really helped me this year. I'm going to come out here with a decent year in a in a in a huge huge challenge uh, to to grow it. So, uh, John, do you have any comments? Because I know that that uh, that you do pumpkins. Yeah, we talked about about it before, where I eliminated crimson clover from my cover crop because I like to plant them green, and I would have um, crimson clover would make seed, and then I'd have to use. Um, um, where I use the herbicide um, uh, permit or um, Sandia, um, I was able to knock it down. But then it came, it, you know, the, it, we kept getting rains and it kept coming on. And it didn't matter on um, on the big pumpkins, but on the uh, like the delicata squash and those, it, it completely covered them. But what I couldn't I, find them. What I did this year, yeah, finally with my feet. Yeah. So, so we this year, and what I do uh, in a four-year rotation in pumpkins, I I mm -hmm. I'll plant the cover crop in in sometime in July, and and we put sudax in it this year, along with um, rye, vetch, uh, radish, uh, peas, uh, some um, uh, uh, clay, iron clay, uh, cowpeas, right. and um, and I'm going to get a heck of a lot of biomass. All that that sudax is really tall. And um, and then I'm gonna so I'm trying to figure out whether to roll it down in the fall or wait till spring or or what to, and then I'll have the rye and vetch come up in that. So mm -hmm. so I'm I should have a pretty thick. Hopefully I can plant through it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, cover crop. Yeah, well that's yeah, good. I, so you, you've been working at this for a while, and um, you know you you just keep learning as you do it. Any other comments or questions? I was just curious, Glenn, there in uh, Eastern Kansas, do you have any vegetables at all um, at your place? Uh, no, we don't. I do know a couple guys at a small truck farm, but it's all mm -hmm. you know conventionally tilled. So, mm -hmm. but it's an idea that I might pass on. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, any other quick comments, David from uh, Illinois? I know that you're pretty much a commodity in a commodity area there, but um, I know there's a lot of pumpkins growing in Illinois. Um, what are you seeing out there? Is anybody trying to do any no-till or cover crops with pumpkins or anything? From my knowledge, from what I've talked to a few producers who are uh, raising uh, pumpkins uh, on the commercial side, I mean, nobody is that I, I can pinpoint, but it's mm -hmm. something that I would 
like to work with some guys on and try a few mm -hmm. acres of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they're peaking uh, just outside of Peoria. Mm -hmm. um, that area is huge yeah. for uh, right. pumpkin and, with Nestle and Libby. So. Right. Yep. Yeah, that would be a challenge for you there uh, because um, I'm, I'm quite aware that uh, there's a lot of pumpkins growing in Illinois. So, good. Okay, um, let's move on here, and uh, we'll uh, open up for questions a little bit later on. But I want to touch on uh, transplanted um, vegetables, uh, and, and that basically the biggest barrier, I'll just say, is having the equipment to be able to do it. Uh, and and there's just nothing out there that you can buy. So it pretty much has to be made. But uh, if you're going to set yourself up for there, um, the the three most popular cover crops is uh, cereal rye, hairy vetch, and crimson clover, and that mix. Uh, you just heard John say why he doesn't like crimson clover, and it's basically because it matures a little sooner. And if you're going to be planting later, um, then you may not want that. Uh, you might want a hairy vetch that matures essentially two to three weeks later. So these are the little subtleties that you begin to find. Um, and, and I would just agree with John that later you want a later maturing cover crop for your later expected plantings. That's why you want to try to set yourself up for success in planting the right species. But, um, but there's just a picture here that you can kind of see this ideal mix. The nice thing about the cereal rye is it kind of creates a trellis for the particularly the hairy vetch to climb up on and actually grow and proliferate. Um, so that that picture there is I just I love that picture because it's, that's just like beautiful to plant into something like that. And if you would roll that down, it's uh, maybe it's not quite mature enough to terminate with a roller totally, but uh, it, it's just a beautiful mat, uh, a mat of biomass to be able to, to uh, plant plant into. Um, so uh, that pretty much. Uh, wraps up my uh, my my talk here for today on this. Um, I just would just go back to the pumpkin thing that I see huge potential there. Uh, and I will mention that in my area of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, there's 2,500 acres of pumpkins, and nearly 2,000 now are no-tilled into cover crops. And um, that the main drive being force was having cleaner pumpkins uh, and the other thing too is is the sweet corn that's definitely the two most popular crops that are, are no-tilled so uh, into cover crops so any questions about what we talked about here uh, anything and how to set yourself up for success in in no-till vegetable production any questions from anybody I'm going to just put slide up here on what I want to talk about next week, and then we can open it up for any other questions on any cover crop topic, like we always do at the end. Um, but next week, it's kind of an interesting topic here, uh, and, and this is this is something that I get asked sometimes. I was just speaking in Cooperstown, New York, on Tuesday, and uh, a guy asked, you know, how do you convince your neighbors to plant cover crops? And so I have this kind of nice title here, how to talk to your neighbors about cover crops and still remain friends. Because sometimes 
these issues could could become a little bit contentious. Uh, I, I've I've experienced that a, a while already, but uh, but you know I I want to I, I have some some uh, some ideas to share on that, and I just think it would help us all in the in the, the in our own context, whatever they may be, to be able to have an effect in our in our own community, in in where we live and where we work, and uh, and this can go beyond that even. Even uh, people that we know, you know, that are outside of our neighborhood and you have a discussion about cover crops. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about uh, next week. So any cover crop question at all uh, that you might have here, anything you've been thinking about or want to discuss here while we're on the call today? Anybody? Glenn, do you have anything? Yeah, Steve, I, I kind of babysitting my granddaughter. So. I have uh, friends that are trying to grow pumpkins conventionally, but if they was going to do the cover crop ahead, what would you recommend? The cereal rye or something like that in the fall? Well, um, I would cereal rye is is the main component for keeping them cleaner because the straw, I'll say, stays around till harvest. If right. you just use a legume like hairy vetch, for instance. Uh, it is going to disappear by August, by by about August or so. It just did decompose. So the mix then, uh, if I would say the the most bare bones mix would be about a bushel and a half of cereal rye and about 15 pounds of hairy vetch. That's okay. the most basic thing I would recommend. Um, then uh, you're adding a, a few things here and there, depending on what you're comfortable with, what the seeds available. Crimson clover is always good to add. But to, to keep it simple, hairy vetch and cereal rye is the bare bones foundation uh, okay. for this. So um, that would be my, my quick answer for that. Now, if they're experienced with cover crops and, and they're like, yeah, I'd like to add a couple other things uh, to that, you could, you, could, uh, you, could, you, you could swap out triticale for cereal rye, which is what I have done. <laughs> A triticale isn't as available as much as easy everywhere, so that's why I say cereal first. I like triticale because it grows a little slower in the spring. It doesn't get quite so big so quick, and I, I think triticale stands a little bit better when it's when the, the hairy vetch is climbing over it. Uh, and so, so that's just a quick, I guess, starters starters guide there, Glenn, on on what 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 you would encourage them to do. Well, I'll have to listen next week because we have very little cover crops right in our area. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good. Good question. Yeah. Anyone else have any questions on cover crops or comments or anything? I planted green beans into standing green rye green yeah. before, like a few years ago. At that yeah. time, I did not have a roller crimper on my planter. Right. So after I planted, I wondered, uh, should I roll this down or should I just let the yeah. rye stand? Yeah. I thought I better roll it down because I was afraid it might interfere with the harvesters. Yes. I talked to the broker and I pointed that out to him. I hadn't told him I was planting in the green beforehand. <laughs> Probably good. And he said uh, he was not worried much about the interference with the harvesters. He was more worried that the green beans would grow, get spindly. Uh -huh. Trying to seek the white yes. in that right. rye. Right. So I definitely then did roll it all down uh, after okay. we planted. Do you think and that was the right? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Good. 
this is John. I, I grew green beans in, um, in rye, and it was nice. There wasn't any soil splashing up on them. And, uh, and you can get out after uh, rain and harvest, just like plant. That's the other thing is that, that we can go right out in the field after a rain and, and pick up um, pumpkins and not, not make tracks. And, and, uh, but I do, we did see on the monitor uh, stripes from my, my spray lanes from pumpkins and my harvest lanes are the same. And um, so we did get some soil compaction there, I think, that, that uh, yeah. showed up on the monitor. Yeah. Yeah, well, a year like this, uh, you know, you, you got to go and you got to go if you have vegetables or, or sometimes anything out there. And and um, I have a two shank ripper stripper that's set up on uh, my tire tracks and I don't pull out at, pull that out every year. But I have a few places I'm going to have to take out some tracks where we went in and out of the fields and, and stuff like that. But uh yeah, it is really. We just yesterday we had uh, we had a whole trailer load of pumpkins ready to go, and I was four bins short, and it was raining, and we had to go out to the field, and it was certainly nice. I mean, it was literally pouring down rain, uh, and we went out there and loaded them up because the truck had to go. And if it wouldn't have been no-till, it would have been impossible to even enter that field. Um, but there again, that's that's you know people ask me the question all the time: Do cover crops pay? And I'm like, you bet they do. There's a lot of intangible things out there um, that at least, at least if you know what you're looking for, that, that really do make them pay. So uh, any other questions from anybody? Comments? Observations? I would say those of you who are on, uh, on the Facebook group, uh, Dan Towery posted some pretty cool research from Kentucky on the effects of annual ryegrass and breaking through fragipan soils. I know it doesn't apply to all you, to all of you, but I thought it was very fascinating information. So I'll just mention that. Um, but I guess one last time, any other questions or comments for today? Well, if not, thanks for your great questions and your attendance. So I look forward to seeing you here few short days we'll be back to our normal tuesday schedule next week on and uh, look forward to seeing you then and uh, in the meantime have a great weekend thanks steve yep